Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic thought and history. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our expert guests questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Hope you enjoy. I am here with Mufti Muntasir Zaman. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khairan for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here and have uh, hopefully a fruitful conversation tonight. Yep. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to start off first by asking you to introduce yourself, uh, your background, uh, why you're interested uh, in, I guess, Islamic studies in general, hadith sciences in particular, uh, where you've studied, what you've studied, and um, any projects you have right now that you would be interested in talking about. Um, in all honesty, I don't have a very interesting life story, nothing too inspirational. But since you did put me in the spotlight, I wouldn't mind sharing some personal experiences. Uh, my journey growing up is somewhat conventional, as people may be aware, you know, born and raised in a um, Bangladeshi family in New York City. Uh, in New York, I was born, uh, did my hivd locally, then I traveled to Canada to begin my preliminary studies of the Dars Nadami. There's, there's an institution over there. Interestingly, it's one of the earliest Darul Ulooms or Dars Nadami programs that was founded in North America in the late 80s. It's called Ma'ahad al-Rashid. Over there, I began my preliminary studies where I studied um, Urdu, Arabic, basic history, basic fiqh, etc. And uh, from there, I traveled to South Africa. This was around 2008 when I joined South, uh, the institution in South Africa known as Darul Ulum Azadville. Um, I completed my Alimiya program over there, you know, um, the six-year program where you complete uh, the fundamentals, the Dars Nadami, concluding with the Kutub al-Sitta, the six uh, compilations, canonical compilations of hadith. Um, during that interim, I was uh, fortunate to have studied the seven uh, qira'at as well as the three additional qira'at, making it the ten qira'at. Uh, I completed my formal studies for the Alimiya program in 2013. And after that, with the fadl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I had the opportunity to join an IFTA program with Mufti Ibrahim Desai. And what is, uh, what is IFTA? Sorry? IFTA? Yeah, I was able to do an IFTA program, which is specialization in Hanafi fiqh. And the Qira'at uh, you were mentioning, what is that? Uh, it's one of the schools of uh, Islamic law. It's a legal school. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The, people the, derive their uh, fiqh rulings. So I had the opportunity to specialize in, for uh, in simple terms, how to give verdicts derive them from our source texts and give an answer to particular questions, kind of verdicts, questions, and answers. I had um, the fortune to spend some time with some teachers over there for about two years, a year in person and a year remotely, after which I moved on to another institution, again, within South Africa. And I think it's important for me to just digress for a moment here 
and highlight some of the rich resources that the people of South Africa are blessed with in terms of academics, in terms of uh, scholarship. So we have all these multifaceted programs from specialization in law to specialization in hadith to history to more generic programs. Um, nonetheless, um, I joined a program in specializing in hadith, the analysis of hadith in terms of how do you grade a hadith, how do you um, analyze the transmitters of a hadith, which is a subject hopefully we can get into more detail later. But it's there where I kind of found my passion for the field of hadith. And I had the opportunity to spend time with some highly qualified scholars in the field of hadith. Today, one of the leading experts of hadith, his name is Sheikh Muhammad Awama, from, originally from Syria, currently residing in Turkey. Some of his students are, have uh, opened an institution for specialization in hadith in South Africa. Uh, that's where I studied. And after I completed there, uh, I moved on to um, the UK, where I pursued my master's uh, in Islamic studies with a focus on hadith again. Um, I graduated from that program in 2017. And alhamdulillah, since then, I returned back to the States. I joined Qalam Institute, uh, Sheikh Abdul Nasser's uh, Islamic Seminary here in Dallas, Texas. I've been here for roughly two years and working with the local community and uh, blessed to have very enthusiastic students with whom I have fruitful conversations every day. Wonderful. Uh, absolutely impressive. How, how many years altogether uh, has that been? I began my formal Islamic studies after my HIV, meaning my formal um, Alamiya program in 2006. So you're talking about roughly 10 to 11 years. Oh boy. There's a lot of exams. I think credit is due to my parents for enrolling me into these programs very early on. I've had classmates, interestingly, many of whom were double or even triple my age at the time because, you know, they weren't um, given that opportunity earlier on. I guess a lot of credit is due to my parents for their foresight and um, admitting me into these institutions very early on. Absolutely. I, I know many kids who at some point in their life wanted to become scholars or, or, or um, you know, just study the deen more in detail, go to different countries to study, go to a madrasa to study. But due to whatever life restrictions they had, pressure from parents to go in a different career path, they were unable to pursue this passion. And I mean, eventually, I think it dies out in a lot of people. Um, in some people, it obviously doesn't, which is why you're encountering people who are you know, double or triple your age studying with you. But again, it's an absolute blessing that Allah gave you and which allowed you to you know, it, study it, this. Interestingly, a very, it's, it's a very interesting conversation because it's oftentimes a hit or miss. Many people join a madrasa, a darul ulum, an institution of learning very early on without any objective, without any true motivation. And eventually it's more counterproductive. And many others, they're able to join early and it works for them in the long run. So it's not always a happily ever after ending story. Oftentimes it can always, it can end up as something more counterproductive. So I guess for many people getting that, and the opportunity to study later may be a better thing for them in the long run 
than had they been given the opportunity earlier on. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can totally see that uh, for certain people. Um, I was wondering what 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 did you study? I knew you said you did more hadith related stuff in the UK, but what exactly? Uh, what what type of degree program was that <clears throat> that you were involved? That you were in when you were in the UK. So in the UK, there's an institution known as the Markfield Institution of Higher Education. It's a uh, they offer BA programs, MA programs, and PhD programs. Uh, I enrolled into the master's program, and although the course wasn't catered towards a specific hadith um, course, it was more generic. We did like courses on Muslim minorities, history, Sirah, Quranic studies. Western um, influence on Islamic studies, you know, subjects which are somewhat generic. What I meant by focusing on hadith was because my master's thesis was focused on a particular area in the field of hadith. So when I was um, graduating and I submitted my thesis, I had the opportunity to do a lot of research, not only in the field of hadith, but a very specific topic. Which was um, which is known as Adalatul Sahaba, the um, probity, the reliability of the companions of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu and what role do they play in our epistemology as Muslims, and what role do they play in terms of transferring this knowledge and this corpus of Hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu to subsequent generations. So um, I focus on a particular scholar from the 12th century. Uh, according to the Hijri calendar, his name is Al-Amir Al-Sanani from Yemen. And uh, he uh, wrote a rather unique treatise on the subject of uh, probity, the adala, the reliability of the companions, as well as their retention, their memory, both of which are very fundamental components in regards to transmission of hadith. Thank you so much uh, for that. I actually do think that we're going to discuss some aspects of the adala of the Sahaba during this uh, episode. Before we move on, I just want to ask you about your pot, your um, your blog. If you want to mention some more information about that, what what why yeah, did you sure. start? Uh, so basically, in 2013, like I mentioned, I graduated from the Alimia program, and I joined an IFTA program, which is specialization in Islamic law with particular focus on the Hanafi legal school. And I realized there are so many things that I was reading, I was discussing with my cl- fellow classmates and my teachers, and I felt it would be really nice if I could document this, and better yet, if I could share it with a larger kind of audience. And uh, my teacher at the time, Mufti Hussein Kadodia, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve him, he kind of suggested that um, somebody translate a particular article written by a Jordanian scholar whose name was uh, Sheikh Salah Abul Hajj. And I translated it and I was wondering, you know what, what's the best way to relay this translation to a larger audience? And then I did some I did some research and I found you know WordPress began my blog started sharing some translation uh, translations one thing led to another and then that just became my platform to share my research and eventually um, it actually became the impetus for me to write a book on certain queries that came my way based on my blog. And and so you're working on a book right now or did you already finish it? I completed a book. Um, inshallah, I hope to have it published in two to three months. 
inshallah. It's um, tentatively titled Preserving the Prophet's Legacy uh, on the Historicity and Preservation of Hadith. It basically uh, tackles some of these contentious issues of the um, issue of the oral tradition versus the written tradition, the preservation of hadith literature, adalat um, al-sahaba, metan criticism, you know, things which are hot-button topics and frequently discussed in Arabic and seldom discussed in accessible literature in English. You'll find a lot of, like, Western critics are highly skeptical. Muslims discuss this in uh, particular contexts, but we we don't have many works written in a more mainstream, conventional, easily accessible uh, manner. So I decided let me um, write something on it, and Alhamdulillah, hope to have it published in a few months. Understood, and I wish you all the best with that. I know it's 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 a very important um, topic. It's a very necessary project to take on and I'm glad you took it on for anyone wondering about the Mufti's blog it's a hadithnotes.com I'll have a link for it at somewhere uh, wherever you're accessing this podcast but if in case you have a pen on hand a-h-a-d-i-t-h-n-o-t-e-s.com and it's a it's a valuable resource for anything from translations and book reviews to original articles about, you know, uh, Islamic jurisprudence and hadith. And I know, I've seen actually, um, even scholars in the in the Western Academy, you know, referencing this blog for, you know, any number of things. And uh, I'm, again, very fortunate to have the person who runs this blog today here with me. And so I think we're just going to get started on the podcast. And so, Mufti, I was hoping you could give us a a short lecture on the compilation of hadith. What is hadith? Um, how? What? Is, what's the importance of hadith? What's the history of its compilation? Uh, major figures, major works. Uh, if you could just, you know, give us some more information about that. Um, a brief run through um, of the history of hadith. Um, let's begin with the term hadith. We hear it frequently. We for the most part, understand what it means. But there's a very fascinating linguistic etymology for the word. So there's a scholar from the subcontinent who's a commentator on Sahih Muslim, one of the most authentic compilations of hadith, whose name is Mawlana Shabir Ahmed Uthmani. And he talks about this term hadith. He says in Surah Wadduha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the chapter by instructing the Messenger of Allah to say, the blessings that your Lord has bestowed upon you, now go and فحدث, relay it to humanity, relay it to mankind. And he believes that this word hadith is derived from that instruction, that imperative of فحدث, which means to go and relay this blessing of prophethood that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has bestowed upon you. So hadith in a nutshell, is the blessings of the Messenger of Allah codified in his words, his deeds, and his silent approval. So that's kind of what the word hadith means. And obviously, for a more nuanced discussion, there are certain differences in regards to the levels of hadith, the types of hadith, 
what's the distinction between sunnah and hadith. Hopefully we can get to that in a moment. But um, in terms of the historical context of the compilation of hadith, it's quite clear that during the life of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he was advising, admonishing, he was lecturing, and his companions were taking note of everything. And for them, it was something that they experienced, something that they heard, something that they witnessed. So it wasn't that important or that needed for them to physically document it. They were experiencing it, they understood it, and in fact, there were instances where the Messenger of Allah initially cautioned against writing his words. Eventually, he did give permission, but nonetheless, there wasn't that much of a need because, first and foremost, the Arabs were, um, you know, their, their whole civilization revolved around the oral tradition. They would memorize more than the written tradition than write down. Obviously, the Messenger of Allah eventually leaves this world. The Sahaba now have this responsibility of carrying on this uh, this amana, this trust to the rest of humanity. I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt really quickly and ask you. Now, you said the Prophet initially cautioned his companions from writing down um, his sayings. Now, Now, where did that caution come from? So... There's a hadith that comes in the introduction of Sahih Muslim where Abu Sa'id al-Khudiri radiallahu ta'ala anhu mentions the Messenger of Allah sallallahu one day came to us and he saw us writing his hadith. So he asked us, what are you writing? We said, you were writing your hadith, O Messenger of Allah, and he prohibited us from writing it. So the reason or the rationale for prohibiting them from writing, as one scholar by the name of Khatib al-Baghdadi explains, was because... At that time, the Qur'an was being revealed and the Messenger of Allah wanted them to focus on the writing of the Qur'an. Years after, towards the latter part of his life, we have multiple incidents where he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, allowed the companions to document hadith. In fact, he even told some of the companions to write hadith. So kind of facing this apparent conflict, some reports saying that he prohibited it, Others saying he allowed it. Scholars reconciled between them by saying, look, he initially was apprehensive of the companions writing down hadith and losing focus on documenting the Qur'an. Once the Qur'an was preserved, he had confidence in their memories. He had confidence that they are preserving the Qur'an well. Then he gave them permission to write down the hadith. Now, obviously, this shouldn't be confused for him saying, don't preserve my hadith. He simply didn't want them to write it. Obviously, they were practicing it, they were learning it, they were inculcating it, and they were propagating it to others in that time. So in in this largely oral society, um, what was the need in the first place to write anything down if people had phenomenal memories, if they had a culture of, of oral transmission? Well, a number of reasons. First and foremost, because although the general scene atmosphere at that time was people had phenomenal memories, I mean, it would always help and serve as an aid if you took down notes. That time, not only during that time, but actually in the entire first century of uh, the Islamic calendar, whenever scholars would write, they wrote not for the purposes of authorship or for the purposes of, excuse me, documenting all the information that they heard. Rather, it was to aid them in their memory. 
So you can understand it as a secondary concern. It was never their primary concern to begin with. So two things. One is it would always help to write it down. And number two, it would um, serve as an aid than their primary uh, thing they would rely on. Understood. Okay. And in terms of the Prophet's later confidence in, in their memory, uh, did it, on what basis did that confidence emerge later on in the Prophet? It wasn't necessarily confidence in their memory. It was confidence in that he can now confidently say they have preserved the Qur'an. The fear of them writing the hadith and the Qur'an on the same sheet and having it confused by people who may have not known better, that fear, that apprehension was now kind of removed. Because the Sahaba are memorizing the Qur'an, the Qur'an is being written to an extent, you have hurfav, overall people are now able to distinguish uh, between the Messenger of Allah's words. And now he has this confidence, he can lay back and say, you know what, fine, go ahead and write. I don't fear for you to confuse it with anything else, or you become over-reliant on it. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, so that, that was during the life of the Messenger of Allah. Uh, after he passes away, you can say that the companions still, to a large extent, given that they were a predominantly unlettered civilization, they were, they were reluctant or apprehensive of embracing this written tradition wholeheartedly. So you will still find companions immediately after the demise of the Prophet ﷺ who were, you know, vehemently opposed to the concept of documenting the hadith and writing them down, right? Like Umar anhu and others. Yet there were still that batch of companions who were writing, who were um, documenting hadith. But again, the primary mode of transmission at that time was the mode of memory. And I think it's important to note that knowledge in general or information in particular, the way we preserve it can take multiple forms, right? So one is I'm in class, my teacher says something, and I write it down. Another way is I hear what he or she says and I memorize it. The third way is, okay, I don't sit down and I actively try to memorize it. I put it into practice and in, in that manner, that information gets preserved. And last but not least, I may not write it down. I may not actively try to memorize it. I may not actively inculcate it, but I'll go and propagate it to others. And by that, people will, you know, in a communal level, preserve that information. This exact same phenomenon applied to the hadith. Although many Sahaba were apprehensive of writing down the hadith even after the demise of the Messenger of Allah they were still practicing, memorizing, propagating the hadith, and through those modes were hadith being preserved. Now, I'm not saying that nothing was written because early on, within a few decades, you had not only personal collections of hadith, you had state-sponsored initiatives to collect hadith en masse. And there are reports in our books of history which kind of attest to early attempts at preserving hadith. So my point being, after the Messenger of Allah passes away, they are trying their best now to preserve his memory, his teachings. And they're doing it through these multiple ways, whether it's writing it down by some of the companions, whether it's memory, which is predominantly the case, whether it's practicing, and practicing is, interestingly, a very influential tool of preserving and transferring knowledge. 
as uh, many people may be aware for some scholars such as Imam Malik the scholar of Medina the eponym of the Maliki school for him the praxis the practice of Medina was authoritative which speaks volumes to how important in his sight was not necessarily the written tradition but the practice communal um, praxis and the oral tradition uh, nonetheless, I don't want to digress. Uh, you have the first century where people are preserving hadith in multiple ways. And now the field of hadith begins to take a more structured route. And scholars kind of lay out a trajectory of five stages in the compilation of hadith. The first stage is known as the stage of the sahifa. The sahifa is basically a booklet where an individual will listen to hadiths from a teacher and just collect them without any particular structure, but he collects them nonetheless. A very famous sahifa or booklet of hadith is the sahifa of the student of Abu Huraira, whose name was Hammam ibn Munabbih. He collects this uh, risala, which is perhaps one of the earliest, not the earliest, very early um, um, treatise or booklet of hadith. Again, it doesn't follow any structure, so it's all the hadith he heard from Abu Huraira, just above a hundred hadith that he heard from him without any uh, sequence or structure, but they're gathered in one place. And where was he from? Yes. He was um, he was a student of uh, of Abu Huraira. He was a convert to Islam, and then he came and he uh, studied with um, Abu Huraira in uh, in uh, Mecca, okay. where Abu Huraira was. I I, I ask that. Because in your understanding, was this gift of you know having phenomenal memory and this general trend of, of oral transmission, was that something that you see primarily uh, in Mecca and Medina or when the Muslims advance or I'm sorry, um, spread in, in, in those in that in the first century, do you find this this common, throughout all the places that they conquer and settle and where people come to learn from them? A few things. Number one, we have to understand that emphasis on orality is not a Muslim-specific issue. You'll find in the Greek tradition, in Aristotelian logic, um, in the works of Plato, in the work of Socrates, they speak about the, the, the harms of the written tradition and the importance of the oral tradition. There's actually one place where Socrates even speaks about how uh, by um, you know, uh, writing, you have basically wasted and destroyed knowledge, but by memorizing it, you have preserved the knowledge. And there are reasons for that. So nonetheless, I think that's very important. We need to take a step back and understand it wasn't specific to the Arabs. It's just that for the Arabs, given that they were unlettered, it was much more you know, a fortiori, it was much uh, more compelling for them to rely on their memory and not on uh, the written tradition. The second point is, as the Muslims are now, um, uh, you know, conquering lands and they are being introduced to new civilizations, the Sassanid dynasty, the Byzantine dynasty, there's this cultural exchange where now there's this synthesis. Some of them brought alongside their written traditions. Some of, and on this side, the Sahaba are influencing them with their memory. But for the most part, regardless of geography and in regardless of time, for the first few centuries, 
whether it was in Baghdad, whether it was in um, Mecca, whether it was in Egypt, the scholars of Hadith maintain this primary focus on the oral tradition. And again, was it something that was indigenous to those geographies or was it something that the Sahaba brought with them? That's something we can't necessarily ascertain, but this much is certain that you will find moving into the second century or even to the third century, although hadith collections were being compiled, these same scholars would still give ex um, exponentially more emphasis and importance to the oral tradition. It's only in the fourth beginning of the fifth century when hadith have all been collected, now that the oral tradition begins to lose its kind of shine and its importance and people now move to the written tradition. Okay. And you had mentioned that, I mean, the Sahaba, were they, for the most part, unlettered? Uh, what was literacy like for the Sahaba? And if they did write, in what language did they write? Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a vast difference in the background of the Sahaba. Some were wealthier, some weren't. And of course, I don't know if these were societies where the wealthy actually engaged in the study of language. That may not have been the case. A lot of times it might have been people of the lower class who were uh, engaged in the study. So is there some type of, I guess, general characteristic characteristic of any particular companion that you can you can highlight which shows whether this person could read or write? And if they were from different, I mean, there were slaves, there were people who came or prisoners of war, people of this nature. Um, what languages did they write in? I mean, they predominantly wrote in Arabic, uh, whoever did write. We have the Kutab al-Wahi, the scribes of Revelation. Uh, Ibn Kathir mentions quite a few. We know there are a few dozen, if we take um, a conservative estimate, who are writing down Wahi. So again, although they were an unlettered uh, community, there were still many who were educated. We know about Zayd ibn Thabit, who learned Hebrew within a matter of days or weeks because he had that interest in it. So yeah, predominantly they were writing in their, um, you know, indigenous language, which was Arabic at the time. And so Jews and, who converted. Uh, this wasn't anything specific to um, class, but we do read in the Battle of Badr, where the captives were taken from the Makkan army. They were the ransom to uh, teach. Uh, some of uh, the Muslims to read and write and education. So yeah, there was that exchange and they were, uh, some of them did learn, but again, that wasn't the main case. We learned from Hadith, Nahnu Ummatun Ummiyyah, we're an unlettered civilization. And again, that just means that they weren't uh, focused on writing or reading, but that does not mean they were somehow backward or uneducated. I mean, we shouldn't conflate the two. And one final question on this topic at least, what were they writing on and what were they writing with? Uh, are you talking about um, the early Muslims who were collecting hadith? Yeah, though the people, I guess... So it's interesting, there's a statement of Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri from Damascus, a very prolific hadith transmitter. He says that when we used to write hadith, we used to just grab anything that was in our possession, right? So it would either be on the bones of camels, whether it was palm, date palm, uh, palms, whether it was skins, whether it was on rocks. So they would write on anything to the point that 
uh, ironically, um, he says that once I ran out of writing material and I just picked my sandal and I just started writing on it for the fear that I would lose that knowledge. You know, there's there's a bit of a humorous uh, anecdote that they talk about a person who was sitting in the gathering of hadith, and he says that I was taking notes when all of a sudden I felt this funny itch on my neck, and I'm about to move when the person behind me tells me don't move, and I'm wondering <laughs> what's going on. And he says don't move because I'm out of writing material. I just need to write on your neck because I'm I, I'm I'm scared that. I won't be able to save this knowledge anywhere else. So, yeah, they, at that time, they didn't have it. Now, you're talking about, that's still in the first century of the Hijri calendar. When you go into the second century, which corresponds to the the 800s of the Gregorian calendar, you now have a paper that uh, travels its way into the Muslim empire from China. And now when writing material becomes more easily accessible, now you see this fluorescence of writing and note-taking and authorship and what have you. And so we have early um, early fragments, early Quranic fragments. Do we have anything uh, of this uh, nature for the hadith? We, we do. Um, we have early fragments of the Muwatta, which is from the 200s. We have secondary copies of Hammam ibn Munabih, uh, his Sahifa. We have relatively early copies of the of Sahih al-Bukhari. But the thing is, we don't have written documents from that century. But two things I would say. Number one, there are um, uh, engravings that we find of hadith, right? So it's very interesting. There's a scholar uh, from Arizona. His name is Scott Lucas. And he recently published a paper on the inscription of some hadith that date back to the first century, but they're not in the form of, you know, papyrus or parchment. They were actually engraved on, I believe, the wall uh, or the parts of Masjid al-Aqsa. So it's very interesting where he says that, look, uh, we have uh, written um, evidence of hadith from the first century. Again, it's very minimal, but that's evidence nonetheless. The second thing is there's this author, her name is Nabia Abbott from the University of Chicago. And uh, she has two studies on early papyri, um, Arabic papyri. And she studies some early documents, fragments of either Ibn Ishaq's uh, Sirah or um, Muqatil's uh, Tafsir and uh, other works of that sort. But we don't have documents of hadith collections that date as early as the Qur'an. Uh, the third thing I'll mention before um, I carry on is we have to understand that these early collections, these sahifas or suhuf, were later incorporated into larger collections that came later on. So for instance, Imam al-Bukhari, who comes about a century, a bit less than that, but roughly a century after Hammam ibn Munabbi, he authors his famous Sahih al-Jami' uh, al-Mustad al-Sahih, and he incorporates within that the Sahif of Hammam ibn Munabbih. So we have early manuscripts of, of Sahih al-Bukhari wherein these early collections have been incorporated. So in that, uh, in that capacity, they have been indirectly preserved. Okay. Yeah, I asked because unlike the Quran, you know, there was a, 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 a strong need to compiled the Quran in the time of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and then again in the time of Uthman radiallahu anhu 
And so obviously you can, you can kind of see that there's this, you know, effort to compile different, you know, writing material upon which the Quran is written. And as far as I understand, the hadith were more, there were, there were never, there was never a need to compile the hadith in the same way that the Quran was compiled. These are probably personal um, and they remain personal. And so, yes, I guess for the Quran, there was a mass burning uh, by directed by Uthman uh, anhu. The same doesn't happen for hadith. And so, one would think that there might have been more uh, uh, more evidence of of the writing of these things. But I guess because these things were more personal, um, it might have been you know unlikely. To, you might have been unlikely to find these things the same way you might, you know, happen upon some Quranic fragment that dates, you know, from the mid seventh uh, century. I mean, a few. I think there's a few. I have a few comments on that. Uh, number one, we can't just um, the story doesn't end here. Like every other week or month, we begin to um, uncover new manuscripts, earlier manuscripts. Just recently, earlier this year, a very valuable manuscript of Sahih al-Bukhari was located, the riwayah, the recension of uh, Al-Qabisi, uh, a scholar from the Maghrib. His recension of the of Sahih al-Bukhari was recently um, discovered, and it just got me thinking of, there may be so many documents out there that we have yet to discover, and I'll tell you one reason for that is, many of these libraries that hold these manuscripts oftentimes they are incorrectly labeled. So we could well have in some of these libraries extremely early manuscripts of hadith collections, but unfortunately they have been incorrectly labeled by a, like, you know, an uneducated scribe or a librarian who was unaware of these things, and they're just going to continuously be there accumulating dust until someone happens to open it up and realize, wow, subhanAllah, this isn't the book that it's titled as. It's actually the handwritten copy of the Muqtah Imam Malik, for instance. So I, I'm really optimistic because new um, manuscripts are being unearthed every now and again. And I do hope that perhaps earlier works will become available. Again, not to mention that the orality, the oral tradition was never their major focus. They didn't really mind whether their written works were preserved or not. And that's a very lengthy discussion, but um, I think that's that kind of feeds into the reasons why we don't have all their written, at least early written uh, documentation available at the moment. Understood. And I'm going to stop interrupting you now because I think there's a lot of very important aspects no, that you would free, like to... Uh, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm just thinking about the student who's using the this. Where the hadith literature now begins to take more coherent, more systematic structure. Basically what happens is, you have to understand, literature is a mirror. Literature is reflective of a civilization and what's happening at that time. So after the more ad hoc, kind of uh, writing style uh, known as the Sahifa, you now move into a century after the Prophet had already passed away, which is the second century. This is the century where prominent jurists like Imam Abu Hanifa, Ma'amad ibn Rashid, um, uh, Imam uh, Malik, and others were operating. Now, 
at that time, you had some very heated legal debates that would take place on a number of issues, from the way of praying to the manner of giving zakat to hajj, etc. They used to have these conversations where it would be like in the form of a debate. So let's say A is presenting his position on why uh, a person should raise their hands in prayer. And then B would respond uh, in turn uh, why you shouldn't be raising your hand and they would give the evidences. These conversations eventually were transcribed and they took the form of what we now know as the musannaf, the musannaf genre, books of reports which are structured based on the early debates that scholars had on these highly contentious legal issues. So, for instance, we look at the muwatta of Imam Malik. This falls under the second stage, this genre of the musannaf, where he's writing on legal issues which were debated upon by these early scholars, whether from Medina or whether from Kufa. So that's the second form. And mind you, these collections don't only include prophetic hadith, meaning the statements of the Prophet they also include post-prophetic athar, meaning the statements of the companions, the verdicts of the successors, the tabi'un. So it's this uh, plethora, this amalgamation of different reports in one collection. And, and you so use the, the word athar? Coherent, it has a structure. You, you use the word athar, can you just translate that? So the word hadith generally is used for prophetic reports, the words, statements, and silent approval of the Messenger of Allah And the word athar or akhbar are used for post-prophetic reports, meaning the statements and verdicts of the companions and uh, the successors that tabi'un. Okay, thank you. So somebody like Imam Malik, when he writes his muatta, He's not only collecting hadith of the Prophet, he's also collecting the statements of people like Abdullah ibn Umar, also the verdicts of somebody like Sa'id ibn al-Musayyab and the scholars at Medina. All right? So this, this is around the mid-2nd century, right? This is the time uh, where Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and them are operating. Now, you fast forward a few decades, towards the close of the 2nd century, you have this new initiative that begins known as the Musnad genre. You may have heard of Musnad of Imam Ahmad. Basically, you have these scholars of hadith who feel that these collections, unfortunately, in their sight, include non-prophetic reports. So they wanted to um, restrict the collections only to prophetic hadith. So now they begin this movement of compiling an, uh, hadith based only on prophetic reports. And a good example of that is the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, where you have these prophetic reports collected in there. That's the third stage. This is by the time um, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, and them had passed away. Imam Bukhari was just born. Um, that's kind of like the general sentiment. So that's the third stage. Now you move into the third century. So it's already been 200 years since the Prophet ﷺ passed away. And now you have this new, um, again, based on the demands of the time, the circumstances then, scholars now begin to um, author books on a different structure, which is known as kind of the Sunan slash Sahih genres, where now they're not only focused on prophetic hadith, 
they add some uh, they add some more conditions to it. So it would have to be hadith of the Prophet It would have to pertain to legal issues. And some scholars in particular, like Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim, they added the clause of authenticity that they would ensure that whatever collections they had gathered, it would only include authentic reports. Because before this, earlier scholars would include reports that were of a high tier of authenticity, but as well as those hadith which were of a lower category of authenticity uh, for reasons we can get into later. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so this is the third century, and it's in this century where the Kutub al-Sitta, uh, more famously known as the Siha Sitta, the six canonical compilations of hadith were collected. Uh, those of Imam Bukhari, Muslim, Nasa'i, Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, and Ibn Majah. So these collections were gathered. This century was dubbed by multiple scholars, Sheikh Sharif Hatim Auni, contemporary, and many others call this Al-Asru Dhahabi, the golden age of hadith, where the science of hadith now reaches a peak in terms of its compilation. The century after that and subsequent generations now focus on this body of literature that these scholars have left, and they begin writing commentaries, indices, um, uh, summaries, and basically they begin working around it, which is kind of the final phase of the compilation of hadith, which a particular scholar, Mahmoud Abu Rauf, uh, Mahmoud, uh, sorry, um, uh, I think his name is uh, Muhammad Abdul Rauf uh, from Washington. He says um, it's known as the analytical phase. The analytical phase is basically uh, that phase where um, they start working on existing literature of hadith. And from there, people continue writing, but these are the more uh, famous or uh, well-known stages of hadith compilation. I just want to add one final point, uh, that when we think about hadith, the compilation of hadith is only one piece of a very large puzzle. Because hadith compilation is only one aspect. Then you have the science of narrator criticism. Then you have the science of hadith terminology, and you have the science of uh, of tarikh. You have you have multiple disciplines related to hadith, which have their own respective histories and how they were compiled. What I just mentioned right now uh, only pertains to how these hadith of the Prophet or subsequent scholars were um, put into book form over the first three or four centuries. So, so you have the first five stages, right? You have the sahifa. You have sahifa meaning they just collected hadith without any structure. Then you have the musannaf where they collected it, they put it into a coherent structure, but it included statements from those besides the prophet. Then you have this third stage where they only collect prophetic hadith with a particular structure. Then you have those who give it a structure, it's prophetic hadith, but they make sure it's authentic like Imam al-Bukhari. Then you have the analytical phase. This is the first five centuries of uh, hadith authorship. From the fifth century onwards, you have a very new tendency. There's a scholar from University of Chicago. His name is Garrett Davidson. His uh, entire thesis was on the subject. Very phenomenal study. It's known as like the post-canonization period. What happens to the field of hadith now that all the hadith are collected? Because 
the scholars of hadith initially they had this uh, they were preoccupied with collecting hadith preserving it authenticity whatnot but now when everything's already graded to an extent collected now what do you do so the focus of hadith slightly shifts to um getting authorization um collecting hadiths in terms of like later compilations and it's, it's a very broad subject which um It'll take a long time if we get into it, but it just just so we know, uh, from the fifth century onward, the, the 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 purpose of authorship in the field of hadith is very different, and even the general atmosphere begins to shift. 